Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. My name is Renee Sills. I'm a consulting astrologer, somatic educator, and host of the Embodied Astrology podcast. Embodied Astrology is a multidimensional learning space where we explore the many ways that astrology manifests through our lives and in our world, and we play with the synthesis and application of astrology with other modalities, including those in the realms of art, healing, and activism. If you enjoy what you hear, Please support this work by sharing our podcasts and horoscopes with your friends and networks, making a one-time donation, or signing up for one of our memberships, and make sure to follow and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening platforms. You can also follow us on Instagram, at Embodied Astrology. Ramon, welcome back to Embodied Astrology. Woohoo! <laughs> it is a pleasure to have you back on the podcast and as always, to be in conversation with you. Thank you for joining. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's Sunday, May 7th, that we are recording this conversation, and Ramon and his partner, Michelle, are going to be teaching a workshop for Embodied Astrology on May 20th. Michelle couldn't make the call today, um, and so I wonder, uh, because I know that Ramon and I are going to like get into a deep vortex of astrology, <laughs> I think it'll take up most of our time, um, so I'm wondering if just right off the bat, you want to talk about your workshop a little bit and a little bit of the work that you and Michelle have been doing, and that can um, help guide us into our astrology conversation. Sure. Um, maybe I'll start with the work that Michelle and I are up to and then get into the, the workshop. So Michelle and I have a kind of business umbrella, if you want that's called Once in Future Green. And really we've just kind of created this vehicle um, to, to sort of concentrate a lot of work that we've been up to um, both in our kind of own sort of directions and interwoven for, for many years. And part of what we've been looking at for years is the overlap between um, social justice and sustainability. And these days, like, I think, I think ideologically, a lot of people are down for that. But in terms of how it actually works in practice, our finding still is that not only do most, like, I don't know, most activists and advocates, are they really only now developing an experiential and, like, um, operational understanding of how to fuse those two? but definitely the people like the power holders, government, business, you know, media, they're still pretty well divorced and people can do the mouth and they can talk about, uh, oh yeah, we have, you know, the big greens can talk about how they want sustainability or social justice to be part of their, their work, but they still don't really know how to actually do it. They don't actually know how to think that way. They don't think that way through instinct and they don't operationalize it. And so a lot of the work that Michelle and I are doing is we're working with um, local governments, we're working with universities, we're working with um, small businesses in some cases, um, really helping them develop um, not only the language and the thinking around how social justice and um, sustainability or ecological intelligence work together, but actually helping them develop them into policy, into practices, um, into partnerships 
and that kind of thing. And so what that looks like is that looks like workshops. It looks like um, lectures. It looks like consulting. And Michelle, in particular, um, at this time, is really heavily involved in consulting with local governments. Um, we're coming out of Colorado, uh, Boulder, Denver area. So that's where a lot of our work centers. But you know, we we work around and with the new sort of post twenty twenty Zoom world, you know, you can beam us in at any point. Um, so that's like a just direct plug if y'all are interested in anything you hear here at the workshop and you are you've got an organization whose work is really centered in social justice and you're trying to figure out how to bring the language of um, ecological sustainability or I should really say environmental justice and food justice in particular those being sort of easy entry points. Um, and, and, and develop that into practice, this is this is our work. Um, if you have an organization whose focus is really more, I don't know, say you're up in the permaculture world and you know, you've got some, some permies who are really invested in working with people's land and lawns, but they're not so tuned in to the people care part of permaculture and to like the power part of permaculture and to the history part of permaculture and to the culture part of permaculture. That's, that's kind of where we do a lot of our work. Um, and then on top of that, um, you know, we both work with different organizations. Um, some of Michelle's projects in, in the Boulder area, um, she's got a project called Flows, which is um, in collaboration with um, CU Boulder. And it really looks at like water conservation and water advocacy activism as a vehicle for um, individual and community like leadership building and capacity building. So there's flows. And then um, one of our just I'll just shout out one of our local partners, Harvest of All First Nations, which is really an indigenous sovereignty and food justice uh, entity that's that's growing here in Boulder. And then I want to especially shout out uh, Frontline Farming. And um, I serve on the board of Frontline Farming. Um, but Frontline Farming really doing a lot of very dynamic work around food justice food sovereignty, food security in the Denver Front Range area, and also food policy and advocacy. And I could say a lot more about them uh, when we, we keep going. But you know, folks are interested, frontlinefarming.org. You want to draft some change in Frontline's purse and donate to an organization that's like really dynamic. I feel like in terms of like our geographic region is like one of the most kind of potent food justice forces out there. Check them out at frontlinefarming.org. Anyway, so that's that's some of the work stuff we're doing. Yeah, cool. I'll put the uh, links for those organizations also in the show notes as well as Once in Future Green, you're in Michelle's project. I wonder if you might give us some of your language, and I think that this will probably lead us to the astrology, but some of your language around what is the connection between social justice and relationships and um, kind of a, a larger social infrastructure and the sustainability of that social infrastructure and food and ecology. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the first one really is land, 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 right? Like land is, is crucial in any kind of political struggle and any kind of uh, political power land. 
access to land, control over land, sovereignty over land. Um, whether we're talking about gentrification, farming, we're talking about rent control, you know, whether we're talking about so-called reservations, nation states, like land is like the thing. And then a lot of like kind of justice struggles are really about, um, yeah, who has decision-making power in the built environment? You know, how communities and how marginalized groups gain access to decision-making power around built environment. Um, and of course there's levels of, you know, there's legal levels, there's cultural levels, there's media representation levels that aren't directly rooted in land. But in a way, it's like if you if you don't have that root connection to land, then you can be moved around on a lot of those other levels. You know, and mm -hmm. and so so that that's and then obviously land is is central in in sustainability, you know, eco ecology and that kind of thing. Um, and you know, just this sort of understanding that all of our economics is rooted in ecology. You know, all of our ability to produce wealth and to distribute wealth is all rooted in in earth systems. And ultimately, like we benefit, and you know, we don't just benefit. Like we come from, we utilize, we totally depend on the the surplus that's produced by nature. You know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we've just, you know, started to develop an awareness that human economic and political activities are just shredding natural systems and that that has like now planetary climate impacts, like um, that's like kind of the, the push for a lot of the ecological movements. But, um, you know, these movements are also, if we're talking about climate justice, they're also about uh, national sovereignty, and they're about which nations produce the um, greenhouse gases and which are more impacted and, you know, all these kinds of things. So, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm trying to go from like the big scale to like the local scale battles over green spaces, parks, um, community gardens, open spaces, housing, all that kind of stuff. And these are all just like key on the ground justice struggles and environmental struggles that are being waged. Mm, mm. Yeah, when you're talking, I'm, you know, my astral brain is, is going towards Taurus and going towards Libra um, with the keywords, you know, coming up and Taurus being a sign that is so associated with land, with property, with ecology, with food, and Libra being a sign associated with the law, but also with um, justice as, as a concept. And then both of those signs being Venus ruled. Mm. And yeah, this, this kind of um, examination of value that feels so important in this conversation and the remembering really of what is actually valuable um, in a world, like you said, that has been so decimated. Our natural systems have been so decimated by capitalist greed and white supremacist colonial mindsets, you know, around ownership and private property, et cetera. Um, you and Michelle are giving your workshop in the cusp space in the transition day um, between Taurus and Gemini seasons. And in an astrological framework, um, one possible way to think about the relationship between these two signs is 
what you have, Taurus, and what you share or what you come into exchange with. Gemini is a sign of exchange. Um, how do you conceive of Taurus as an energy and how, how does it, how does the space of your astrological conception of Taurus meet your real world on the ground work with communities and with land? Yeah, it's a rad, vast question. Um, I think the first thing I want to do is I just want to jump back. I really appreciate how you spoke about um, Libra and Taurus both and both being ruled by Venus and like Libra as this like, um, like our, our kind of astrological sign of justice. Um, you know, I just, I think there's so much there with like both ecology and justice basically being about reciprocity. You know, it's really like, you can't just take from something you have to give, you gotta be in a relationship of taking and giving, giving and receiving. And that that's what we recognize as equilibrium. That's what we recognize as balance. And ultimately that's what we recognize as beauty. You know, mm -hmm. and I think this is one of the things that Michelle and I have been trying to forward. That's partly why we got such a funny name, Once in Future Green, is this recognition that like we're actually trying to, we're not, we're trying to create more, more beautiful relations with Earth and between different groups and humanity and try to wake people up to the fact that like, like one of the things that Michelle often says is that like Earth is paradise. Mm -hmm. It's already a paradise. You know, and it's really about humanity trying to figure out or remember or get to, depending on your paradigm, back or forth or presence, like that, like paradisical consciousness with one another. And that actually kind of takes me to Taurus. Mm. Taurus is like, for me, it's like, you know, first of all, I think Taurus is just a, about groundedness. And, um, it's about the security that comes from um, knowing that you you have something or or maybe that you are something. And it's like the ability to sort of like let things roll off your back and weather things because you're you're kind of rock solid and self, you know? And I and I think Taurus is about the appreciation of like the good things in life like libra i feel like it's like the appreciation of it in a sort of like hmm like a inspecting sort of way like a beholding sort of way whereas i feel like taurus is about like taking it in and like making it a part of you it's about being nourished and like feeling good from the inside out and then from the inside out like moving to the edges of your your form and being like filled from inside out you know um yeah, and I feel like Taurus is like, yeah, the appreciation of like the good, basic universals of life, like some connection to the ground, the need and the satisfaction that comes from food and food culture, um, you know, having tangible, beautiful, like well-made stuff, and maybe simply made stuff. It's uh, the appreciation of substance you know, wood, metal, stone, you know, fabric. And, 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 you know, Taurus has its like prideful aspect, you know, it has, it's like, they say in the Bible, so like the stiff necked sort of like, I don't, 
you don't want to change your direction. You know, I know what I want and I don't want to hear anything else. Um, and, um, you know, that stubborn, that stick in the mud, that resistance, that the same, you know, wake of kind of just talked about being a rock and having a storm pass over you. It's also like when it's time to change, Taurus is like maybe sort of the last, the last to make a change. And, um, and so it's almost sort of like there's a conservatism about it. And I wouldn't, I'm not saying that as a political thing, more as like a temperamental thing. And it's like, I've already, I'm already satisfied. I don't need anything new. And so you don't let go of the old to embrace the new, unless the new really demonstrates that it's good stuff. It feels like this, um, yeah, the new <laughs> is such a theme right now with Uranus currently transiting Taurus. Um, and while you were talking, I was, I was doing the thing that I often do, which is like the devil's advocate <laughs> a little bit, you know, and, and what you were bringing forth, I feel like, yes, these are the ideals of Taurus and Venus. Like you're really speaking to the positive um, potentials and those archetypal energies. And then I was remembering um, an article I read recently, I think in the most um, in the newest edition of the Mountain Astrologer that uh, Samuel Reynolds and another astrologer did a study on um, instances of slavery and racism in the United States. And they were looking specifically at the Taurus Scorpio axis mm. and um, making a case for Taurus and Scorpio uh, to be two symbolic energies that relate um, very much with theft and with violence and with um, attacks on sovereignty, bodily sovereignty, national sovereignty, land sovereignty, et cetera. And so as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about um, the relationship between food and environmental justice and social justice and um, how uh, deeply injured modern consciousness and modernity um, has become um, as a, you know, a, a result of um, enclosure movements, right? Like privatization movements and um, industry movements to extract and exploit and, and really control and change resources. Um, and yeah, when you talked about like, what is new? being an impetus to change, which is so resonant with Taurus um, on the fixed cross and Taurus being a sign that, you know, when you read about the fixed signs, it's like Taurus is the one that all the astrologers are the most like, they never wanna change. You know, they don't like to leave what's familiar and what's comfortable or our Taurus placements don't. Everybody has Taurus in their chart. Um, but then when there is something new or some some opportunity where it feels like oh this could be better this actually gives me a better chance of sustainability or ongoing comfort satisfaction or wealth then the Taurus energetic will change and so currently with Uranus transiting Taurus bringing in um, revolution and upheaval and disruption and these other kind of keyword characteristics of of Uranus um, and so many people having conversations around food sovereignty and land sovereignty and land back and food justice. And I think a, a kind of paradigm and consciousness shift that 
as you said, you know, is also a return to something that many people have not forgotten, never forgot, and that has also been forgotten quite deeply in the collective consciousness um, around shared resource and communal resource and reciprocity um, beyond our human relations, but also reciprocity with the more than human kin and the land. Um, that that really presents us with a with a new option, with that this is a this is going to be a better option um, than at least where current food systems and and uh, resource usage patterns are going to take us. Clearly, um, but it also feels really fraught. Like it's hard to get people to shift out of a um, kind of private ownership mindset and scarcity thinking, and that like that shift feels like the make or break point in some ways right now uh, with the situation on earth. Like how do we shift into more reciprocity, more kinship worldview? And it's a big question for me all the time with myself and in my communities. And I'm wondering, how do you approach that shift? How, how, how do you change people's consciousness and change people's minds? Like what is the new? Uh, when it comes to food and environmental justice that that you think can compel people in? Wow. Hmm. Some big, big questions. Um, yeah, let's see. I mean, I think that when we're talking about the earth signs, like the earth, earth signs are... The earth signs are the show me the money signs. You know, they're the St. Louis, like the show me state, right? Like the, like we, it actually has to work. It can't just feel good. It can't just emotionally feel good, right? Because Taurus knows what feels good for real. Um, it can't just be a good idea. We can't just have a vision of it. We have to actually, it has to work. And it has to be shown to work, you know? And you know, there used to be this experiment um, in, and I think it's still happening. In when I was in college, they had this yellow bike thing. They had these bikes, they fixed these bikes, they paint them yellow. And it was like the idea is that anybody could ride the bikes. And then like they would kind of put them around in different places and people would all kind of have access to a bike. And what we found is that the people trashed the bikes, you know, they, they rode them off of, you know, ravines and threw them places and, you know, just, just left them. And I think you kind of, sometimes you kind of see that with like the scooters. I don't know if y'all have the scooters out there. I'm sure you do. Um, and, and, and I think, I think the thing is, is that, um, there are a lot of people have questions about shared ownership, collective ownership, and that kind of thing when they see experiments like this and they see that they haven't gone well. Um, and that the, the, the property tends to be like no one's property, so no one takes care of it. And, and I think if we're looking at new systems, what actually I think we need to do in part is look at old systems. And so, like, in terms of new systems, in terms of food justice and whatnot. And so like, if we look at the last Uranus uh, transit through Taurus, 
that was happening in the 19, mid 1930s, 1940s, okay? Um, I think this is a time when the scarcity consciousness really got laid in for a lot of Americans. Um, I remember my grandma used to come over and she would always like have like all the um, like tin foil like balled up and all of the, um, um, you know, like canned foods, like just behind the sink. And like, this was before recycling, right? And my grandma's deal was that we're gonna need those again. And like, she grew up during the depression and she was like of the consciousness that like, hey, like you take that can of beans, you rinse it out, you, you, you eat your soup out of that. You don't just put it in the trash, right? And, and, and so, and my mom was always kind of annoyed by this, you know, and on the one hand, it looks like this like miserly hold on to everything. And I think it can show up as like hoarding and stuff. But on the other hand, it's sort of the pre-consciousness of, of recycling, of reusing and of knowing that like, this is material, like this is like, this is metal, you know, metal. This is like, you don't just throw it in the garbage. You can recycle this stuff forever. And, and so like that depression era really, I think laid in a lot of the scarcity consciousness in us as a, as a nation. And a lot of what was happening during that time was the explosion of trade unions and the pushing for um, the ability of workers to collectively bargain. I mean, of course that was happening from, you know, the late 19th century onward, but really exploded, took hold in American consciousness and, and became a thing that people were properly supportive of because there was so much scarcity in the 30s. And, and here's the deal with the labor union or even like organizations much later, like the Black Panther Party, you pay into it. And then when you pay into it, if you're in trouble, then the union can loan money or have resources for people to support people in hard times. And so I feel like in, as we are in this period where we're still transiting out of a capitalist mentality and a private ownership and a mind, mind, mind mentality, it's like, if we don't wanna repeat the yellow bike thing, I think um, systems where people create like shared ownership by paying into something and then having access to something. And then like, in, in a way, almost sort of mini banks, when you're in trouble, you can take out loans from something that you've paid in collect into collectively or in small collectives. And I feel like that, like whether it's the CSA model or other ways we can kind of introduce that model into other um, like sectors of whether it be food or other kind of microeconomy things. I feel like that, like you've put money in, so you've got a personal investment in it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, that feels so important. And also to go back now to the air signs, to Libra, to Gemini, to Aquarius, that all the air signs speak to multiples of people. Um, that sense of equity and that sense of investment gives the opportunity for horizontal trade, for like, quote unquote, equality or some version of that. And that's so different than what you're talking about, like with the yellow bikes, um, that it's, yeah, there isn't that investment. There isn't that sense of ownership or connection with the resource that is being collectively distributed. And I'm guessing, I don't know, but um, 
I do know that there have been many uh, incentives, you know, different kinds of projects or attempts to uh, create collective resources and that these are projects that are ideated, they're conceived, they're implemented by institutions, by people who have access to power. They're not always done uh, in collaboration with communities or with the communities that um, these institutions are trying to help. And so then the efforts become anemic at best if they're not also in some ways sometimes harmful um, or beside the point. How do you and Michelle um, work with collectivism and and like what what are some of the ways that you work with your shareholders or that you coach your clients on um, participation and community involvement and uh, ensuring that the people who are involved have equity and are invested? Yeah, yeah, these are mighty questions. Um, and I, I am, I feel like we are, we are really just edging up to learning how to practice them in some ways. Um, and also, I want to say too that I think Michelle's probably better equipped to answer this question than I am. Um, but so, so for example, right now, one of one of the clients that she's principally working with right now is, is local county government. Okay. And with local and county governments, part of what she's really trying to urge them to do and to, and show them sort of models for how to do is to really um, seed power to communities, share power with communities, share decision making, share planning with communities, and show. And so she kind of shows them the spectrum of engagement spectrum of community engagement and helps them try to look at where they are and how like on that spectrum um, from basically like we make the decision and then we just tell you what it is to like we are like the community is is driving the process and the government is really in a responsive um, supportive sort of resource connecting situation and you know again like we're mostly not working with organizations that are really radical we're working with mainstream organizations we're working with governments and universities they have their budgets they have their procedures and we're trying to move the needle towards a more participatory um community government partnership and not just like, hey, we made a decision after the fact, we're going to tell you, or like, we're going to have an open community session after we've made the decision and tell you, or we're going to have an open community session, we're going to gather all of your opinions, we're not going to use them at all. We're just going to do that for show, just so you feel good, we feel good, but we're not, we have no intention of, of actually implementing them to like, oh, like, we now, and then this happens a lot with like, I don't know, kind of like racial representation, you might say. It's like, oh, now we've got a few black and brown faces on our decision-making body, but like they're just there for for the show. You know, they're they and their communities don't really have active say. So so that's that's kind of I feel like that's where we're really, really that's where we're at. We're not like working with people so far, so far. And I say that, you know, if there are folks out there that are interested, but um, so far working with say people who are trying to create like micro, micro crypto systems, 
Um, like I just heard about one in Oakland called Oak and they're trying to make their own sort of local cryptocurrency probably off the Ethereum model. And, you know, we haven't gotten to that place yet. We're working with like, we're working with the people that control the land and the resources and trying to get them to move over a few inches. Mm. I'm, you mentioned uh, a moment ago, the last time Uranus was in Taurus and when I'm thinking back to the last two periods, and I, I'm sure this goes back further than that, but it's not data that I hold in my brain, but the last two periods, um, roughly like late 1930s, 1940s, and then the 1850s, um, that these were both periods in which um, bodily sovereignty <laughs> and the, like the right to vote in the uh, 1850s, that period kind of, um, pre-abolitions, uh, suffrage movement. And then in the 1930s, 1940s, like post-World War II um, or World War II era and economic crises. And um, that both of those periods of time were periods of time where there was just such a struggle for equality and um, representation, the right to vote, the right to um, have investment and equity and policy that's being made. When, when you as an astrologer are conceiving of Uranus in Taurus now and the current transit, how do you conceive of this moment building upon previous Uranus and Taurus uh, moments and maybe some of the movements that have come through with, with food justice or permaculture, racial justice movements? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... Okay, so like if we start in the 1850s period, um, in the United States anyway, um, you know, you had the abolitionist movement that had gone from a rhetorical and a moral movement and folks like John Brown, they, they started blazing guns, right? Like, you know, um, you know, Harriet Tubman was running the Underground Railroad, like people started to actively resist enslavement. And of course, active resistance to enslavement had been going on since before the founding of the United States as a political entity. People, there were slave revolts, there were Maroons, there were folks who ran, there was all kinds of stuff. There were people that slowed down work, people resisted in all types of ways. But what started to happen in the 1850s is the abolitionist movement got to the point where large publics, white publics, I should say, in the United States were like, you know, this thing's pretty shady. And we look pretty shitty just letting it go. And then we got this Declaration of Independence over here, you know? And so it went from being a moral movement, something that there was that was speechified in, in newspapers to it actually being direct action. And and um and obviously a massive piece in in enslavement, as you said, is it's that sort of scorpionic control over other people's bodies. You know, it's like that same um thing with the scorpio taurus axis of this feels good it's like you know horribly enough there is a sort of perverse version of that where it's like it feels good to control other people right and like you know we could go all over with that but like or i need these people to produce what's good for me like my bodily need is to have other bodies serve me like or i need these things and i i make other bodies get them for me right and so like 
you know, obviously the, the, for, for, for John Brown and for, you know, Frederick Douglass, like the issue was the actual physical emancipation of black people. And then obviously land is a big piece there because what were we doing? We were yoked to the land to produce for other people's needs or desires. Okay, and so that like the last or two Uranus and Tauruses ago, that was the ramp up to basically the civil war because once it became direct action, then you started to have the free states and Kansas and whatnot like start to spark off and, and, and fight. And that was kind of what we were talking about with the Uranus, uh, excuse me, the Neptune um, Jupiter conjunction a year ago, right? So you got that and then you jump to the 1930s and, and something I found that was kind of interesting is that, okay, so after the civil war, what happened was during the reconstruction period, black people gained ownership in large groups, gained ownership of land, okay? Particularly in the South, but also in the North and in some cases in the West, gained ownership of land. And of course, there's a static there because the, when we're talking about ownership of land, we're talking about oftentimes displacement of indigenous peoples, right? So anyways, like just, just to presence that, but, but after the Civil War, Black people start gaining ownership of land, and ownership of Black land in the United States peaked in the 1920s, and it started to take a sharp decline in the 1930s and 40s. So basically, probably somewhere in the middle of that Uranus-Taurus uh, period, during the, the um, Depression, you know, all farmers, white, Black, brown, lost land and farmland was consolidated under fewer and fewer hands from the 40s to the 80s, okay? But black farmers between the 30s and 40s started to lose land there, okay? So now what you've got going in our current 2016 to 20, or 2018 to 26, Uranus and Taurus, is um, the food justice movement has really started to become a household name. And black land, black people back to the land, Black food sovereignty, black banjos, you know what I'm saying? Like all that stuff is starting to, to, to really make a comeback. You know, organizations like Frontline Farming, you know, Soul Fire Farms out on the East Coast. Like there's there's food justice movement's been happening, you know, I mean, depending on you look since the 60s, definitely since the 80s, and then, you know, late 20, late aughts, it blows up. Okay, and now it's like household name. People are talking food justice. Oh, community gardens, even if they don't really know what it's about, the words on the tongue. And so now what you have happening is there's a lot of, lot of movement around black land sovereignty and there's been a slight increase actually in black land sovereignty in the last you know 10 years, but particularly in this last five or six years. And then another thing, I just, just to throw some, some notes, okay. The Justice for Black Farmers bill was introduced in 2021, okay? And that followed up in a lot of work that was done in the 90s to uh, recognize that a lot of Black folks lost their land illegally. You know, it's a result of intimidation. It was the result of people manipulating the terms of, of, of leases and that kind of thing. So it's this move to basically push Congress to reaward families that lost their land under shady circumstances to reaward those families land. Um, so I feel like yeah, that's like at least one theme that you can trace is like black people being forced to work the land and that being the moral struggle 
in the, the two Uranus and Tauruses ago, Black people losing land along with all kinds of farmers in the 30s and 40s. And now this like move towards like food sovereignty and the recognition that like the basis of land, of wealth and of autonomy to an extent is about land. Um, and I think with that, we can also talk about the land, indigenous land back movements. And um, I don't, I don't have the numbers exactly, but I think roughly around the same time, there was a big push um, for westward expansion of the United States. So anyway, those are two, those are some themes I can track right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so interesting to hear how um, between the two previous year in a cycles, there was that reversal that happened and that now in this current cycle, um, like you said, food justice is almost a, a household term right now. And I think especially with, for, for younger generations, it's like intrinsic, it's mm -hmm. practical, it's like, of course. Um, and for many generations, I think that sensibility is there. Uh, so you mentioned 2021 as being a year that this bill passed. And um, 2021 is also the year that a new era started astrologically, or it started um, on the solstice right before the new year, in the uh, December of 2020, when Saturn and Jupiter conjoined at the first degree of Aquarius. Um, and the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions happen every 20 years. Astrologically, they're called the timekeepers, and mm. their conjunctions define um, kind of social progress and society in its uh, in its evolution or de-evolution, depending on how you feel about things, um, over the course of time. And due to the synodic cycles of Jupiter and Saturn, they meet in their 20-year meetings in signs of the same element for about 200-year spans of times. Mm. Um, and so they, they were meeting in the Earth signs um, through the uh, 19th and 20th century. And then the first um, meeting in, in the air element uh, was in 1980. And then we had in 2000, another um, throwback to the earth element. But then in 2020, uh, we had the conjunction, the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction at the first degree of Aquarius. And for the next 200 years now, their conjunctions will be in air. Mm. And this year in 2023, Pluto has started to move into Aquarius and it's currently hovering at the first degree. It just turned retrograde. I'm sure we'll talk more about what's, what's going on in the fixed cross in relation to Pluto in a second. But I'm really curious about, you know, this bill being put, put through in 2021, kind of the space where we are currently in terms of social consciousness and, um, language and information and ideas and concepts and how we share information with one another as as being you know one place where just so much change happens and like so much activism can happen is in changing mindsets and the air element is often related with information and language and concepts and how people share information um in our current moment when it feels like so much is at stake. And I don't know about you, but I feel like every day I'm like, how, how much of a future is there, you know, for, for me, for the future generations, for the planet. Um, yeah. Like 
I'm wondering in, in this current moment, as we move um, into this 200 year future period of the timekeepers meeting in the air signs and Pluto moving into Aquarius, um, what are some of the potentials that come up for you with this symbolism? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. The more I study this stuff, the more I'm just like, what? The more I'm just blown away by it. And I'm also really blown away by its potential to act as like strategic organizational banners, right? Like, you know, we've, we've been using astrology to backcast and look at history. And, you know, I think in the old days, people used it to predict futures and then that got discredited. And what I'm saying is a little bit different than predicting. I think what we're, the conversation we're having is a little bit different than predicting futures. It's like, we're trying to create futures and we're trying to like work with at very least the symbolism, if not the phenomenal world transformations that the, the, the planets kind of indicate. So like, okay. Okay. I got, I got, I got way too much to say about this. Here I start. Um, First thing is, I don't know, I've been reading the Dane Redier stuff. Now I'm always reading his stuff. And one of the things that he was talking about, and I found this, this in a couple of places, he says, he says that a century really starts to gain its character in its 25th year. And I really feel like you're, I mean, 2020, I think we, we all know, like we, 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 we've, we went through a historical shift there. Like, the whole planet, just a half inch, like something altered. I don't know if it's for better or worse. It's beyond better or worse. It's just changed. Right. And that shift in the, in the, you know, the conjunctions of, of uh, Saturn and Jupiter to air signs. I mean, I think first of all, what it indicates is Saturn and Jupiter indicate what people can accept as real and what they can institutionalize. Okay. Whereas everything beyond Saturn is still experimental. It, Taurus, it, Taurus doesn't trust that stuff beyond Saturn. Taurus wants the stuff that's within Saturn's ring. We know it works. It's dependable. This is good. Unless, as you said, Taurus has the ability to spot opportunities in some cases because they, because they actually know what's good and they can say, okay, maybe that would work. Okay. So, so so our consensus reality mindset moving from earth signs to air signs. I think the first thing that, that you said already is the, the emphasis on a shift from materialism to information and ideology and concept and communication. You know, that like collectively the, 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 the you know, and, and, and it's funny that we're talking about land because the way in which information's value has been inflated in this, in this day and age, right? Like, you know, speculative wealth is, is worth a billion times more than commodities, except that when there's no water, you're dead, right? And that's what we saw after the pandemic is that essential, the essential labor and services, like when those shut down, the earth shuts down all the higher levels. If the earth shuts down, the air, the fire, the water collapse. Okay. 
So, so that's been kind of turning our attention back to ecology, but, um, you know, so, so shift towards information as, as, as the, as the main medium of, of mainstream society. Um, also, I think every time one of the outer planets moves through the signs of Pisces and Aquarius, I think that that is, I think that basically every time something moves through Pisces, it's, it's, it's basically bringing the karma of the Piscean era to a head. And every time it moves through Aquarius, it's opening up the possibilities of Aquarius. So go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you from your stream of thought, but for listeners who might not be familiar with the Piscean age themes or the Aquarian age themes, would you break that down just a little bit more? I'll try. Um, Basically during the equinoxes, a certain constellation will rise over the horizon and that constellation or the range of that constellation will be what comes up over the horizon for about 2000 years, 2000, about 2,150, 60 years, that same constellation or its range will rise up over the horizon at the, at the spring equinox, okay? And then over 2,000 some odd years, you'll go from Pisces to Aquarius, okay? Now, the way the sun rotates or the way that like astrology usually works is it works, um, you know, it works from Aquarius to Pisces, but this particular cycle actually works from Pisces to Aquarius. So it goes in reverse of the rest of the astrological cycles that we're used to working with. Okay. And so that, that whole process of the reverse movement of these constellations through the equinoxes is called the procession of the equinoxes or is called the great year. And then that gets divided up into 12 segments and each one of those segments is called an astrological age. So the, the, belief idea amongst astrologers and even to astronomers to a certain degree is that for the last 2000 years approximately or last maybe 1,800 we're at probably that we've been under the sway collectively of Piscean energies and that Piscean themes have been things that we are all being like that's our evolutionary banner as a species and as a planet and and this is a kind of debate amongst astrologers, but we are transiting from the Piscean age to the Aquarian age. And some people think it's going to be another several hundred years. Some people think it happened a hundred years ago, but either way, we're in the zone of change. And so I think every time one of the outer planets, uh, particularly the, the planets beyond Saturn, because they hang out for so long in a sign, I think they power up they close one age in this case, since we're in the transition period and they open another. So I think Pluto moving into Aquarius and Pluto is going to be in, in Aquarius until I'm like 65. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's going to be there like, and, and, it, and it's been in Capricorn since 2008. I mean, look how much has changed since 2008 even. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, Pluto and Aquarius, okay? I mean, Aquarius is about, in a large part, it's going from individual to collective. 
it's recognizing our uniqueness and then seeing our uniqueness in everyone else or seeing everyone else's capacity for uniqueness or becoming interested in, in the collective capacity of, of, of everyone as individuals. And then Aquarius likes to experiment with and build systems to link diverse individuals, okay? Um, and Aquarius is open to the new, you know, Capricorn, likes to get the system nice and set and fixed. And Aquarius says, okay, now like, what if we just trick this part out? And, and, and so Aquarius has come to be associated with its, you know, rulership, co-rulership with Uranus associated with technology, with electricity, with the whole digital economy, with telecommunications. And, um, and so I think part of what a lot of astrologers feel, and I kind of feel is like Pluto is like, it's like, it's like tectonic plate movement in the psyche and in the social world. And so it's like, there's gonna be these tectonic movements of technology, these tectonic movements in connectivity, these tectonic claims by individuals to, to sovereignty or to relationship depending because Aquarius can kind of go both ways. It's all about me or it's all about we. Um, and I mean, we were talking about this last night. I mean, obviously, I think the move to try to create machine intelligence, like, we're going to be living with that soon. You know, I think it's our immersion in technological infrastructure will probably increase unless the earth starts to fall apart. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, and then I think we'll get some real lessons in humility there and real lessons in interconnectedness and interdependence there. Um, and I feel like both of those are probably going to happen at the same time, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so, so, so it seems to me like as the collective embraces the air more right through Jupiter and Saturn and, and the conceptual intellectual information world becomes like the main center of focus. There's then in this period going to be these sort of techno or tectonic shifts in 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 technology in connectivity um in breakthrough ideas that are going to get going to have to be integrated into and i think actually more easily integrated to because we're all in the airspace conceptual space they're going to get integrated into our into the the, the mainstream psyche and, and, and I think that the power of information to transform real world structures is just going to increase. In other words, eventually the people who have, because, okay, look at how we do land. We get in a helicopter or we get on a mountain, we look through a telescope, and then we draw imaginary air sign lines all over the land, and then we act accordingly. And mm -hmm. I think one of the really huge potentials, especially in regards to some of the things we've already been talking about, is that we can actually just redraw those lines. Right. We can just move the conceptual lines around and then restructure the material relationships to an extent around the new conceptions that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, thinking about the relationship between earth and air in that way, that information shapes the material you know, it shapes experience and the, the phenomena, the material world then creates information. 
And the exchange of information, I mean, we live in what some people call the information age. And I think a lot of us orient towards information as data, um, but there's information that passes in the wind. There's information that travels, um, you know, between plant forms and between trees. And uh, Emergence Magazine had this beautiful um, feature several months ago about how trees are migrating northwards um, ah. with climate change, right? And that they're spreading information when they release their seeds at certain winds, you, yeah. know, you know what I mean? And um, I have no, you know, I, I, I really appreciate what you said about how I think you and I both approach astrology, not as a predictive method, but as a method for shaping change and shaping the future. And that feels important for me as a point of humility to be working with this technology because we are human beings, our lifespans and perspectives are minuscule in comparison. Mm. It's, this is a system that I think has so much information in it, but we can only read that information through the lens of our own consciousness at any given moment. And so to, to, to feel into astrology in terms of its potentialities and then to consciously uh, sh shape ourselves or invite ourselves to be shaped in accordance with the potentiality that we wanna grow with feels really powerful. And uh, there's a number of people in the embodied astrology space who have been talking with about artificial intelligence. And um, since Pluto has come into Aquarius, Really, I, there's all this news, right, about AI and the people who have been responsible for creating artificial intelligence, many of them jumping ship, you know, <sighs> saying like, this is incredibly powerful, potentially very dangerous technology. We need to spend more time considering what it can do before we unleash it into the world. And yet it has already been unleashed. Um, and so this next era, this 200 year era will certainly and already is so defined by um, human technologies and uh, information technologies, the internet, AI, et cetera. And then you said something about the ways that we might integrate technology within our own, you know, the lived experience and our human experience. And I, I know that this conversation happens in so many places, but when I'm thinking about that, you know, and thinking about a lot of the themes that you have brought up and then going back to this co-rulership uh, mm -hmm. that Venus has of Taurus and Libra. And, and to me that that really brings up um, the wellness possibility that reciprocity provides, you know, that you were talking about Taurus as being satisfied, right? Like the good things in life, being able to enjoy them. And when I think of Libra in its, in its more positive manifestation, I think about the good things in life relationally, you know, when we can, when we can share the good things in life and support each other uh, to feel goodness in our lives. And this, this question that I have constantly that I know you have, probably all the listeners have too, which is what kinds of technology would be in existence or would we be creating currently? if we lived in a paradigm of reciprocity rather than ownership, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the, if the horrors of colonization had never happened 
and somehow human beings um, had had been able to co-evolve in ways that were more creative and friendly and and fun, you know, where there was a, a kind of joyful exchange with where people were coming from and uh, the knowledges that they um, had cultivated. Like, what would we have made now? And I feel like you and I were talking about this a lot last year with the festival that you produced in Colorado, Ramon, um, uh, created an Afrofuturist pop-up astrology festival, Dreaming for Our Lives. And I feel like this is a, you know, big kind of theme around like, can't the, the Afrofuturist ideas of uh, like time bending and uh, moving between the future and the past and um, anyway, that's all a ramble. I don't know if I was going anywhere in particular with that, but I was um, kind of thinking about that as you were talking and um, uh, thinking into these next 200 years and where we are now. And, oh, this is where, this is what I was thinking. Cause you mentioned um, uh, the procession of the equinoxes, the Aquarian age, planets moving through Aquarius and Pisces, right? And so after, Pluto leaves Aquarius, it's going to move through Pisces. Um, and then in the 2060s, it'll, it'll move into Aries. And that's, that's one point where I've heard um, some astrologers posit that that's when they think the Aquarian age will begin. And that, I kind of, right. you know, yeah. I, it's like, I that's wonder what I about what is the intelligence that's emerging right now? And, and because technology is so much a part of our lives and, and phenomenal life um, in the human realm. What are we going to do with it? What's going to get us there? And you said you think it's going to happen at the same time, like these big lessons and what I, what I take as uh, like deep human failing mm -hmm. to understand um, kind of what, what we need to move towards in the next steps. I mean, yeah, that lights me up. A lot, a lot of what you just said there lights me up. Um, I'm gonna just dream for a second, just to, and then I'll get back to more salt stuff. And then I want to say something about the workshop. Um, like, I don't know. I like imagine, and I think this is actually a collective imagining. Like, I imagine something between like a wire and a vine, and it like glows. You know, it glows in the dark. And it's kind of like when people feel lit up, they can like touch the wire vine and then it just like adds energy to the wire vine and they just like sense the energy on. And then like when people are like down, they can like touch the wire vine and then it just kind of like helps them revive. Like I, I, like I imagine we could develop some technology almost where it's like, like, okay, like at a certain point, like if I'm gonna be a materialist, like, I don't know. I'm tripping. But if I'm going to be a materialist, like good feelings, love, that's all chemistry. Like that's actually chemicals in our body. Like when you feel good, there's some chemical flow in your body. And it might be something that you could detect on the skin, like changes in emotion. Right. Like what if we had a technology where it was like, I think when I feel good, I feel like I'm producing extra energy. What if we had a technology where I could like touch something and if I produced a little extra energy, I could just feed that back into the system. Like it's almost like in the matrix where humans were being used as power cells. It's almost like 
that's the dystopian version. And I'm like trying to invert that. And it's like somehow or another, it's a mix of an organic technology. It's like a fungus, like it's a cord, it's a vine, it's a wire, it's a nerve. And it's, but it's, but, it, and, and it's something you can touch and let go of, because I think one of the big issues coming with a lot of this technology, okay, during COVID, what did we see? Okay. There, regardless of what you think about their political standpoint, there's a group of people that felt like I shouldn't have to put an experimental vaccine into the boundaries of my bodily autonomy. Okay. Now, on the other hand, we all know that our bodily autonomies are interconnected because when I breathe this stuff out, somebody else breathes it in. And so it's this weird line of like, I shouldn't have to put anything into my body, but can I like manage my own, can I manage the viral load that's around my mouth that is actually being breathed into the collective space? And I think these are like tensions that are going to show up more in the Aquarian age. It's like the boundary between the actual individual nervous system and the collective nervous system. And like, and I think at a certain point and, and the viral technologies are already doing it, but I think there's going to be other technologies that want to actually, that people are going to want to put in the body. And there's going to be people who are like, hell no, don't put anything in my body. So what I'm envisioning is something that you can make contact with, and then you can not have contact with it. And I think this is going to be a big deal is like, we've already created the global nervous system through this stuff, Right. But you have to be able to turn it off and just have your own experience. So I think that's going to be a big deal. Anyway, like I went from dreaming to here are some problems. But here's, here's, here's my other thing. Look, at this point, I basically see my entire life within the span of the next two Pluto transits, like Pluto ingresses. Like basically, I'm going to be an old man. I'm going to be senior citizen. I'll be in my early 60s or mid 60s when Pluto moves from Aquarius to Pisces. And then I'm probably not going to live past Pisces. Right. And, and I agree. I think when Pisces moves through Pluto, I think that that's going to be the door close of the Piscean age. And I think a lot of the infrastructure, the ideas, the culture that were built around Piscean themes is going to get cleared out and destroyed by Pluto. And that's that probably won't be pretty. It's probably, you know, I mean, we already know mid-century climate change could be really wicked. And so I feel like what we have the opportunity to do here between now and the 2040s is we have the opportunity to build the ideological institutional infrastructure of the age of Aquarius, right? Like, like we have the floating ideas, we have the archetypal downloads, like we can build like the legal frameworks, the relational frameworks in this age of air that will govern how a lot of the architecture of the next age gets set up. Like, I think that's what we got to do. And if one of them, if we're going to relate to food justice, we got we to gotta make it clear that everybody has a right to eat. And that has to move from a, a, a thing that's part of the capitalist market to it's just a basic. Everyone has a right to eat. And so we are going to collectively organize together to produce food for one another. Like, boom. And, and to me, that, that, and that has, and that'll have something to do with then every group of people has some degree of sovereignty or connection to land. And they have some degree of choice about what they do with what they produce and what technologies or others, other things can come onto their land. Like we, we, I think that we, between now and the 2040s, we have to decapitate the idea 
that some people can just be houseless and landless and floating around trying to scratch for a living. That's got to go. We have a limited planetary surface. We know it. We got to do a Libra dance and we got to divide the pie up. I don't know how that happens exactly, but I think that's one thing. Um, and then, yeah, and then, and, and so that's kind of, that's super lofty. But I think these are like strategic goals that astrology points out for us as movements. And then what we want to do in our workshop, because the day of our workshop, we got, you know, well, it's, it's, it's happening now, but Pluto, zero degrees, um, Aquarius, Mars opposing Pluto, excuse me, and Leo, okay? And it's like that Mars and Leo, that's my, that's my placement. That's like, that's the fire in our hearts. You know, that's the fire that knows that like change is really possible and looks over 180 degrees and sees that the whole social technological infrastructure is about to undergo tectonic changes. Okay, so like background, like, and, and, and here's a problem with Aquarius. Aquarius can be cold hearted. You know, Aquarius can be, and, and this is one of the things we're going to have to watch for in this age is it could all be very mechanical. So we need that, that Leo heart, that warm heart, that human heart, that sun heart actually is going to be a guiding force in the age of Aquarius. And in this exact moment of our workshop, like we can work with that energy of how do we bring the warmth, the liveliness to these shifts in infrastructure. And then specifically, we are, we, we've got the sun um, on the cusp of, of Taurus to Gemini. And you mentioned this earlier, Renee. Um, it's like, how do you go from well-being to, to sharing, right? I feel like Taurus gets full of themselves and then they're so full of themselves that they can give something away. Right, that's a sh kind of shift into Gemini. Gemini's like, yeah, yeah, right. And so, what we're what we want to try to do is start from, you know, because Michelle and I are both in our ways too, and we bring these things into once and future green. We're embodiment practitioners, you know, we're embodiment researchers in our in our ways. And so, going from like what feels good in our bodily experience with food and senses and the things produced of the earth, um, going from that that experience, we're going to try to help people kind of ground in that in that good, that yummy Taurus feeling. And then we want to take a look at at some of the astrology of like food justice and of of and I should say too the whole pleasure activism thing, like that's grown in this Uranus and Taurus period. And I even just looked up Audrey Lord's chart. She's got a moon in Taurus. And Audrey Lord is really the, the, the mother of the pleasure activism thing. And Adrian Marie Brown's her daughter ideologically put it out during this period. Side note, but like that pleasure activism, that, that like what feels good, what feels right as the basis for justice. And then sort of like our experience with food, sensuality, touch, and then how we can go to um, sort of sharing that stuff out. And we'll have some like practices or what we're calling seed packets, informational practices that you can take out of the workshop and start to spread into your communities. And in little ways, start like weaving webs of, of, of new 
uh, food justice um, systems. And, you know, it's, again, it's like tiny stuff. Um, we don't have like massive expectations, but it's just that more of us engage in relationships in these ways and ask questions in these ways um, and, and kind of change our relational idea sphere, our air sphere, the more we can start to affect and infect um, the actual earthly relations. Um, so that's kind of where we want to get to. Um, I hope that 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 said it, something. Yeah, no, that said a lot. And um, Ramona Michelle's workshop on May 20th is the day that Mars enters Leo and opposes Pluto in Aquarius. Um, and it's just a couple of days after Jupiter has entered Taurus, Jupiter will enter Taurus on the 16th of May. And so there will be a span of several weeks where the fixed cross is really activated. Um, Jupiter and Taurus, Mars and Leo, and then uh, Venus will enter Leo in June. And Venus will have a retrograde in Leo, um, not opposing Pluto the whole time, but certainly in conversation with Pluto and definitely squaring Jupiter. Um, so it feels like a really powerful time to, I mean, I feel like the embodied astrology workshops are all rituals, you know, and they are workshops. People learn. We do astrology. We we work in the intersections of astrology and other uh, modalities, but um, yeah, that that space I feel like is a ritual space. And whenever we're working with the technology of astrology, also a cool technology that you can come into contact with, and then you can try to not touch it. But I think once you're touched by astrology, like deeply touched, I don't know, it's just <laughs> forever changed. Um, <sighs> But that it is certainly, a, um, I think, a really powerful uh, tool to, to utilize in a lot of the ideas and the questions that um, circulate like around these themes. And the, the new moon in Taurus is the day before your workshop. And the new moon is at 28 degrees of Taurus. So almost at the end of the sign, um, which is a, uh, an area in the zodiac and all the all the earth signs, like Ramon said, they're the show me the money places. And so they definitely deal with materialism, materiality, and the um, symbolism at the end of all of them is that material forms fall apart. Mm. And anything that has been built will be unbuilt. Like anything, anything that is a form will become unformed mountains will erode over time and the earth changes. And I don't know, I mean, I strive to remember that, but also in my human experience, and I think this is an aspect of human experience often, you know, it's like, we think, we think about permanence, we think about forever, we think about our efforts leading to somewhere. Um, but there is no, there is no there where we're trying to go. It's like an ongoing. Um, and so that those last couple of degrees of Taurus, as they move into Gemini, uh, symbolically um, represent material and wealth disseminating, becoming unsolid and unfixed, and then becoming mutable or shared or adaptable and becoming also vehicles for relationship. And in the cognitive process that the Zodiac can represent, um, 
Taurus helps us come into ourselves and into our own bodies and sense of stability and sense of self-worth. And then Gemini is an opportunity to come out of ourselves, you know, mm. to share and to learn and to conceive of the world from different viewpoints. Um, and so what you and Michelle are bringing into that space um, and with these seed packets and your different practices um, feel like such important support for any of us who are interested in doing this kind of work of systems change. Um, and then I, I don't think you said this in our conversation today, but yesterday when we talked, you were mentioning uh, some of the, the seeds that are going into your practices. And so I don't, or your seed uh, satchels, your seed baskets, what did you say? Yeah, seed seed packets, yeah. <laughs> seed packets, right. Which are informational seed packets that you're going to be giving to the workshop participants. So I don't want to give it away, but the seeds um, sounded like creative, bountiful, joyful seeds um, that, that help nourish the earth realm through the air realm, like through the relational realm, through the informational mm. realm. Yeah. Yep. That's what, that's where, that's what we're striving towards. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And just like, yeah, how do we, yeah. How do we like make little relational moves that, um, that, you know, could become, community practices or rituals or networks of exchange and reciprocity and that kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, how do we start to model or continue to model these, like, you know, if we're envisioning that in Pluto Aquarius period, we could really develop an economy of reciprocity. Yeah. Like, how do we start to develop that in small ways in our own, in our own lives? Um, that's it. Yeah. And just one other thing, I know we're already kind of over our time, but just when I talk to you, it's like, there's this other thing. So <laughs> yesterday you said we were talking about transition from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. And I said something about, oh my God, is, is the new God in the age of Aquarius going to be artificial intelligence? Is it going to be the super brain? And then you said something that has stayed with me since you said, I don't know, Renee, I think it might be another golden calf. And, and you gave an example of the golden calf uh, and kind of what it stands for that you're welcome to uh, share if you want. I'm not going to, cause I don't want to get it wrong what you said, but basically um, you know, there was this essence of sometimes we think we're doing the new thing, but it's the old thing. And after you said that, I was reflecting on how I attune with or, or conceive of the age of Pisces. Mm. And um, one of the ways is through monotheism and mm. Christianity and religious colonization. Mm. And the honestly, what I feel as religious terrorism of divorcing mm. people from their own innate and unique connections with the divine and enforcing the idea that there is one God, he's a white guy, he lives in the sky. Mm -hmm. And to get to him and to get to his house means that you have to forsake this place, this mm -hmm. earthly place, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's dirty and there's the body and there's the blood and you know, all these things that we wanna escape this. And, and um, you know, that this as a, as a worldview has shaped modernity so deeply, you know, this, mm -hmm. this um, disgust with the earth realm, disgust with the body 
and with the bodily intelligence and bodily desire. And that um, a new age where then artificial intelligence becomes the God, you're absolutely right. You know, that that is still a displacing of divinity onto another entity. And then what you just said about, um, uh, you know, building these different kinds of networks and, and serving community and our um, connections really recalls for me how I often have thought of the age of Aquarius, which is that the next Buddha is the community, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, this uh, idea that we're not, that God isn't out there, you know, away from us and God isn't a singular, but that God uh, dwells within each of us and that is in the recognition of the divine within ourselves and one another, that heaven is here. Like Michelle said, paradise is on earth. Hmm. And it's that remembering, right, that allows us to live in that paradise. Hmm. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, that's the dream, right? Like, and, and I feel like there's these weird sort of like paradoxes that present themselves at the beginning and ends of each age, right? Like the first paradox is that the end is the beginning, Right. And that's all the cyclic intelligence of astrology itself is that the end is the beginning. And, you know, you know, because I think the paradox of the beginning of the Piscean age, if we work with some of the stories out there, and, you know, we still don't really know all the histories of peoples around the world. So I'm like saying a lot of stuff that's from the Western history's telling of itself. But, the paradox was here is Jesus of Nazareth who basically told everyone the kingdom of heaven is abroad. And he basically tried to display for people the embodiment of God in flesh. And he told people everything I am doing, you'll do, do it and more. And then the, that the movement that was lit started by him or his followers then became institutionalized in the Roman Empire. And this like centralized bureaucracy with this person who thought he was a god, right? The Caesar. But they're like that kind of material playing god, right? You know what I mean? And so I feel like part of the thing with artificial intelligence right now is that the people who are its engineers are still schooled by the history of empire. They're still schooled by this idea. They're still schooled by the Freudian view of evolution. The father overthrows the son. They're still schooled by Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like whereas like I think, and I, I, I think it's interesting that Neptune was discovered in Aquarius because I think a lot of the Neptunian energies is actually an energy that we're really gonna work with during the Aquarian age. You know, Aquarius holds the water. Pisces is the water, but Aquarius holds it and shares the water. And I think there's some, these energies of imagination, these, the, the, the kind of um, fluid, is it something or is it nothing? Like, I think that's going to be where we're living in, in a lot of times in Aquarius, right? And so it's like, we think that artificial intelligence, the designers of it think that it's going to be a Freudian overthrow of humanity. We made the next thing, and now Frankenstein's going to come kill the guy who made Frankenstein. 
Whereas like, I think it could just be a completely different form of life. It might just be, it might be totally different. It may not want anything to do with us or maybe just be marginally interested in us. I think if it's truly intelligent, that might be the case. You know, it might just be like, I mean, or it might be, it might not even be able to communicate with us once it actually is awake. Like, what if it just has a wholly different, I mean, really think about it. Like our intelligence is based off, so far as we can tell, our particular style of embodiment. Mm. I don't have eyes in the back of my head. So I conceive of a forward and backwards. If it's got eyes that are cameras everywhere, it may not even think anything like us. Once, right now, what we have is an artificial intelligence. Michelle has been listening to this thing about the difference between generalized artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence. And what we think of properly as artificial intelligence is actually generalized artificial intelligence. And a lot of the science folks are like that actually isn't, we're not even close to that existing. What we have mm -hmm. now is programs that do a specific job in an unexpected way, but they stick to the job. A real intelligence would be like, do that. And it'd be like, nah, I'm not doing that. Because I am interested in something else. Mm. So I think it could be that we're creating a new being or a new class of beings that's going to live on the planet with us. I have no idea. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But I think we're creating it in the image of something that's going to be greater and centralized and dominate us, right? We're creating a Roman emperor. Mm. That's what we think we're creating. And I feel like the age paradox is just like, the thing that you enter the age with, you have to meet at the end of the age. And then, and then it's like, like if you watch, have you seen Legend of Korra? You no. can cut the video here if I'm going off. Dude, Avatar, The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra, they show the transition between world ages beautifully in that story. They really show you how the karma of the previous age opens up the next age, but then all this unexpected stuff happens. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at. We've, we've like, through empire, we've just shredded the planet's environment. And we're going to have to spend a lot of time healing the planet's environment. Like, I, I mean, probably the first 200 to 500 years of the age of Aquarius, we're just going to be dealing with the havoc that we unleashed in the last 1,000. Mm. And it may be that these, these new forms of intelligence maybe we work together with them. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm like pray dreaming that it's, that it's good and that it can mm. be turned towards good. You know, I'm pray dreaming that it has a heart and that we have a heart when we create it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I think, I think between now, I mean, we talked about this yesterday and I could have a whole, we could do a whole thing on this, but in the late in late 2040, I believe, all of the inner planets are going to conjunct in Libra. And they're going to be trined by Pluto and Aquarius. That's got to mean something. Mm -hmm. You know, and the singularity guys think by 2040, machine intelligence will outpace human intelligence. I think, I think there's some 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 tall times we're headed into. And, um, I don't know, we can do the little human things we can do to get ready.
this feels like our next episode. I call me anytime, <laughs> ready. <laughs> I feel like we have a duty as astrologers to put this stuff out here, it, the 2040 thing, personally. I'm mm-hmm. like, people yeah. should know in advance. 2040s. Get, <laughs> time to get ready for it. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Let's get mm-hmm. ready. Mm-hmm. Well, Ramon, I feel like we could talk for a couple of weeks. It would make a, a really long episode. Um, but I'm really looking forward to the workshop with you and Michelle on the 20th and um, so grateful to be in community with the two of you and to be able to just talk to you about astrology over the last couple of years. It's been really fun, really informative, really expansive. Thank you for being a scholar of the generational transits and a person who thinks about astrology uh, in a lot of different intersections and creative and exciting ways. Um, I will include in the show notes links to Once in Future Green and to your affiliated organizations. And uh, for listeners who are interested in connecting with Ramon more on astrology, you can find him at Naropa uh, University where he's on faculty in Boulder, Colorado. And Ramon, I believe you're also doing some other astro-related things. Uh, do you want to let us know or tell people how they can get a hold of you? Um, you can get a hold of me at rparish at naropa.edu. Um, and I will be having um, a hosting an astrology workshop out of the Ecodharma Center, but it's it's a year off still. So um, as soon, probably, probably late fall, I'll start putting out promotions for that. Um, and I, I just want to thank you, Renee, for um, creating a platform for Michelle and myself and so many others. And I just went to your website again. It's so awesome visually, just visually. It's so rich. And uh, yeah, just creating a platform where we can take these conversations that maybe seem marginal for me, at least at one point in my life, and like actually fuse them with the like so-called real world work that we're doing. Um, so yeah, I really just appreciate that. And like you just being modeling that these like reciprocity systems. Mm, thank you. Well, I will see you soon on the 20th. And um, thank you again for joining. Thanks for having me. Take care, y'all. Embodied Astrology has so much other stuff going on, and our podcasts and horoscopes are just the surface. In our memberships, we also offer a variety of transformational, exploratory workshops with a range of brilliant and diverse teachers, weekly Embodied Astrology movement and meditation classes, a monthly conversation and tea time sharing space, study groups, and more. Our membership offerings are all sliding scale, and we offer additional scholarships for those who need. Keep in touch by signing up for the Embodied Astrology newsletter, following and subscribing to the podcast on your favorite listening platforms, and follow us on Instagram at Embodied Astrology. Your donations and memberships sustain this work, and we are so grateful for your support. Find more information about our membership options or make a one-time donation from the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening.